Welcome to The Common Share, a podcast about cooperative businesses. I'm Asa Marshall with Cooperatives First, an organization that promotes cooperative business development in rural and Indigenous communities across Western Canada. For more information on us and what we do, visit cooperativesfirst.com. If you need resources for starting your own co-op, check out coopcreator.com. This great resource site has everything you need to get a co-op up and running. On a recent trip to Vancouver, I had the pleasure of meeting two young women who are part of an exciting new cooperative. Adele and Leah are members of a new worker cooperative called Neighbor Lab. So Neighbor Lab is a business that's creating what they call neighbor hubs, which are pieces of resilient infrastructure that include resources that are needed in the case of a natural disaster. These neighbor hubs also aim to create more connected communities. Adele and Leah are both undergraduate students at the University of British Columbia, as are their two other partners in the business. These four young entrepreneurs are providing a great example of the versatility and the future of co-ops. I spoke to Adele and Leah earlier this year before the launch of their first project, which was officially installed in Victoria this March. Okay. So yeah, do you guys just want to um, each introduce yourselves and tell us what your role is with Neighbor Lab? So my name is Adele Terriès. I am the executive director of Neighbor Lab, and my responsibilities really involve overseeing what's happening in our organization day to day. So communicating with the different members and also making sure that we're, we're trying to figure out our business development and sort of taking the lead on educating the rest of the team about that and looking for opportunities to advance our business. And my name is Leah Carlberg, and for Neighbor Lab, I'm the community development lead, and I've done quite a bit of work helping the team with community engagement and thinking about how we want to approach involving the communities that we're working with, and also working alongside our industrial designers to see how our designs can be co-created alongside the engagement and the, the people that we're working with, both experts, stakeholders, community members, whoever it is. Could you guys just give me a general overview of what Neighbor Lab is? So Neighbor Lab is a planning and design cooperative, and our focus is on building resilience at the neighborhood level. And we do that through two main ways. The first one is through dialogue. So we like to create events that allow people to get involved in, in disaster preparedness in all sorts of ways, whether it's through asset mapping or leading resilience walks, or often things that involve something tangible where people can contribute to a conversation and really start to make connections with the people around them. And then the other main way is that we focus on building neighborhood level infrastructure that helps to build resilient behavior. And these structures are called neighbor hubs. So we're in the process of collaborating with communities to build these pieces of infrastructure that build resilience through that process. Our first neighbor hub will be installed actually at the end of March in Victoria in the Cook Street Village, which is very exciting. Can you talk about the development of that? What is it? How does it work? And how did you guys come up with this concept? Well, our original design for a neighbor hub includes three main components that we identified as being critical both on a day-to-day use, but also in the case of an emergency. And these include energy, water, and means for communication, like having a community bulletin board and a one-way receiving radio to receive information. And so these are sort of the main components of a neighbor hub. But then each neighbor hub for a different community could look different and take different shapes depending on their unique needs and hopes. So the neighbor hub that we've designed for the Victoria neighborhood is taking the form of a bench because that's sort of the criteria we were working with in terms of some of the grant funding that we had available to us. And it incorporates the energy component. There's solar panels. You can charge your phones or other devices. And there's also communications component with a community bulletin board. And inside of the bench, there's resources that the city has provided 
medical resources, first aid, supplies, a receiving radio as well, um, things that might be useful to access after an emergency, like an earthquake. And the process was really exciting for us because we had a relationship with an organization based in Victoria, and it's an initiative called Building Resilient Neighborhoods. And they connected with a block watch uh, on this street that really wanted to build a bench, like that was kind of their idea. And so Building Resilient Neighborhoods really bridged the relationship between us and the block watch on that street so that we could provide the design process of creating a bench that had multiple functions and that could reflect what the community wanted and so then it was a lot of back and forth with different community members and with the city of Victoria to get approval and now it's actually going to be built and we're all going to be digging the hole to build the foundation so it's a it's been a really collaborative process and we're so excited to see it in the ground. It's very exciting. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what is the threat in Victoria say for potential natural disaster like what is the actual threat of, of needing something like this do you think? Well, what we've learned through a lot of our research and through working to place our work within the city of Vancouver's goals and strategies is that building resilience itself can take many different shapes and forms and ultimately involves building the community's capacity to come together after a shock. And we use an earthquake as an example of a shock that could happen, but really a neighborhood could be important after any type of emergencies or even sort of day-to-day happenings. Like it could serve as a meeting place in the case that you have lost your family or you can't communicate with them or whatever it is and it doesn't just need to be an earthquake so although an earthquake is definitely something that would affect Victoria quite heavily as well as Vancouver and they're predicting a one in three chance of an of a serious damaging earthquake happening in the next 50 years so that's why we've sort of taken earthquakes because they're so easy to visualize in a way and they're so dramatic but yeah like Leah said it could just be social isolation and the need to build community which is something we talk a lot about in Vancouver now Mm -hmm. or any big city the city of Vancouver that we worked with from the start really identified this need for getting people involved in resilience building in their neighborhoods. Can you maybe each talk about what your interest is in this field and and how did you decide that this was something that you wanted to do? So from an early age, I've been pretty passionate about environmental challenges. And when I went to university, I started my degree in geography with a focus on environment and sustainability. And over the years, I realized that only focusing on ecological processes wasn't enough for me because I found that a lot of the problems actually arise when people don't have a strong relationship to their environment or they don't understand it or there's other problems that they have that prevent them from actually focusing on environmental sustainability. So that's when I started shifting a little more towards social resilience and addressing social needs. And I think the idea of resilience is really interesting to me because it bridges the gap between the two. It's combining environmental factors like earthquakes and climate change and also the social needs of a community and, and how they're going to be affected and how they're going to, to build, uh, build up again once these challenges happen. One thing that I'm really interested in is grassroots social action and how movements and changes are made uh, from within communities. And I think that focusing at the neighborhood level, like we do here 
with Neighbor Lab has been really interesting because it combines the city policies and sort of the, the larger scale structures that are so important, but it also gives us space for individuals and community members to make changes that they see as needed. Um, and we're seeing that even within the city of Vancouver, this is something that they're looking for, looking to foster within individuals and neighbors and communities and trying to see how they can support initiatives that rise up sort of more naturally because it's really residents themselves who know the problems that they'll need to sort of rise up against themselves. So cities, I think, are really interesting places because there are so many people in, and they're often very dense and they also face a lot of challenges. So the social isolation piece, the like any kind of physical infrastructure impact is magnified in cities because it's such a huge population. And at the same time, I think some of our planning processes are maybe not the best way to engage people in the place that they're living in. So, like, I focus a lot on urban studies in my classes, and a big challenge that comes up is that planning processes, they involve consultation often, but it isn't necessarily a meaningful inclusion of people who are actually experiencing the city day to day. So I think what I I see a lot of potential for Neighbor Lab to actually start to shift how planning processes occur but just for just starting with one bench like getting people actually helping to design this bench and that's really exciting um can you talk a little bit about your group and the skills that each of you bring to the business our team is made up of two amazing industrial designers, Emmy Webb and Steph Koenig, who aren't here with us today, and Adele and I, who studied geography and have backgrounds in environmental sustainability, urban planning, and also community engagement. And I think each of us having our own unique backgrounds and skills and expertise to bring to the topic of resilience has really helped us look at it from a very well-rounded perspective and try to understand different challenges in different ways. When we first started working together, it was really interesting to all of a sudden work with industrial designers who come with a hugely different skill set from what I've experienced and I think Leah as well. But they also had their own passions. So Emmy was really interested in looking at water filtration and water collection and what the potential was there. And Steph was really interested in energy generation, particularly kinetic energy. And so each of us coming in with this very specific interest and then finding ways to combine them makes us kind of a pretty dynamic group I'd say like I think we go in and we're just having fun because we love working together and so we bring that energy with us that's it's been fun to see the reaction of municipalities when we come in and we're like oh yeah this is our neighborhood and it's you know it's so cool we don't say it like that but yeah (laughs) your idea and your business is really unique but you've also chosen to use the cooperative business model which and it's also in in a very unique way so can you talk about why you decided to organize this as a cooperative We originally started through an engineering design competition about resilience, and it was an eight-month process where we did interviews and we did community engagement events, and all of that actually formed the initial idea of the Neighbor Hub. When we went to the competition, we actually won first place, and we had gotten all this positive feedback from the city and organizations and residents. We came back to Vancouver, and we really wanted to keep working together. That was kind of our that was our motivation, and we could see that there was a need for our work. So we decided at that point that we wanted to form a studio and an organization, but we didn't know exactly what it should be. So we actually ended up talking to a lot of different people, our mentors, our connections who ran businesses or were part of interesting business and just trying to figure out why they chose their models. And yeah, the topic of co-ops kept coming up. I think there's been a recent rise in the interest of co-ops and and 
what they can do to sort of shift our idea of business and doing business for good. And so I, I was personally really interested in this opportunity. And when I looked into the resources for, for forming a co-op, I, I came across the, the Co-op Right Now bootcamp. And I thought, okay, well, we have nothing to lose. We might as well just try and learn as much as we can. It'll help us no matter what we choose. But going through that whole weekend, and that's put together by the BC Co-op Association and Van City, going through that weekend of learning about the foundational elements of why co-ops exist and how they operate, the model really resonates with our team as a whole because throughout the year it seems like we've been operating as a co-op without knowing it. We're very focused on a democratic operation of our group where everyone contributes. We all have our specialty. We try to keep it so that no one is sort of in charge of everything or is telling other people what to do. It's That's really important to us that we all get an equal say. And at the same time, we learned about the potential that co-ops have for keeping the community at its core. Because when you form a co-op, you have all these values and and these rules for operation. And we wanted to set up an organization that would maintain that no matter what we end up doing, because we're all at the beginning of our careers. And, you know, eventually we might move on or we might stay. We don't know yet. But we'd like to form a business that will continue and be sustainable and that will also maintain its original goals of helping communities build resilience. So I guess this probably ties a bit to what you were just saying, but what advantages do you find to being a a worker co-op specifically? I think when forming an organization, we wanted to all have sort of an equal responsibility for the cooperative. So being a worker co-op, that allows us to create employment for ourselves without being restricted as a nonprofit or based on our conversations that seemed like a much more complicated route. We wanted to be able to make a profit without being worried about how that would look to the public or something. And also not have outside investors influence the direction of the organization too much. So have you found as you've been working through setting up your business, have there, have there been any challenges to being a worker co-op that you've found? I think the biggest challenge so far has been understanding, first of all, how to create a co-op in the first place. The documentation is pretty long and luckily um, Kyle at Cooperatives First has been so helpful because we've actually gone through step by step with him and he's helped us understand kind of the the tedious documents that we've had to work with. So that's probably been the biggest challenge. But other than that, I'd say going through the incorporation process parallel to actually trying to continue our work, uh, since we're the same people who are both incorporating and doing the work, we don't have employees or anything. It's just a lot of time and a lot of effort on our part. So and you're also students. And we're also students. So doing that and then not being able to pay ourselves yet, that's been the biggest challenge, actually. But I think we're getting there. Some aspects of the incorporation process definitely seemed intimidating. Adele did an amazing job taking the lead on this and understanding what we needed to do. And it was incredibly helpful to have Kyle's support. And I think it would have been a much longer process without it. <laughs> yeah. Can you... Um... Talk about what the business process startup has been like. Obviously, you're very young entrepreneurs. How old are you guys? 22? 24. And 24. So what has it been like to be, again, students and a group of young women starting up your own business? I think on one hand, being young has been really helpful because we bring a lot of enthusiasm and, and just we're doing it because we want to be doing it. And people can see that. And a lot of people have offered help and support in different ways because of that. 
I'd say um, especially we've had a great response from the, the city of Vancouver, for example, because when you come in as a student, people think, okay, well, of course I'm going to help a student because they're the <laughs> next generation all this. So we, we have that on our side, which has been great. And, you know, the chief resilience officer and community resilience planner at the city of Vancouver have been these amazing uh, women leaders in the community that have helped to sort of nurture our project as well. And we're so grateful for that. But yeah, there have also been some challenges in that because we are young and we have limited business experience and limited experience in general, we really have to come in and and build our credibility for ourselves. And we've had instances where some people maybe speak to us as thinking that we know less than we do, and that's not very enjoyable, and we sort of have to maintain that confidence and build it over time and support each other. As students, we have access to all sorts of uh, university-funded grants or small-scale community grants, and we've been really taking those opportunities where, while we can, basically, until we graduate, and those are really small grants, so it's sort of adding bit by bit the amount that we need to build our prototype and build our, our first bench. Luckily, our first bench, we were approached by an organization that already had a grant, and, and that was really nice, and we hope that that will happen, happen again, but part of our challenge in what we do is that a lot of community groups who want to work with us don't have money to to pay us for our work. So it's been a challenge uh, navigating that and understanding which are the groups that, that can pay us as providing a service and which are the groups that hopefully in the long term we can, uh, we can volunteer for or we can work for a smaller amount or yeah. things like that. Definitely. I would recommend to anyone else starting up a project that they're excited about to always apply for everything, like all the grants, all the programs. They're, they're amazingly helpful, and they really do want to support you. And I would start small, too, because we started applying for huge grants. 300,000. <laughs> and we didn't get those at first. Um, and then we started with, you know, $250 grants, and it seems tedious, but you add up the amount, and you also build on your credibility. So... I'm trying to think of a specific example, but like the neighborhood small grants are coming up and those are $500. And if you are thinking of starting a business or starting an initiative, it's a great way to start because you you just build something small and then you, you add on to it later. So, What are your future plans then for NeighborLab? Like you're starting with the bench, but what, what do you hope for for the future? Neighborhoods everywhere. <laughs> That's my goal. Yes. And, and neighborhoods that look like all different things, right? Because that's what we learned. It doesn't have to be the structure that we initially imagined. It can be a bench. It can be add-ons to an existing building, which we're, we're working on with the thingery right now in Vancouver. A dream I have is NeighborLab becoming an organization that has all the pieces of the puzzle that can actually help a community build something from start to finish. So having an engineer on our, on our board, having connections with a municipality and having like maybe a contract with a, with a fabricator so that a group could come to us and say, we have this vision, we have this idea, and we could actually guide them through that process. And what would most likely happen in that case is that maybe in the long term is that Neighbor Lab would actually have different branches or different co-ops that form maybe Vancouver and maybe one forms in Victoria if there's a lot of projects happening there. But sort of this idea that it's applicable to a lot of different communities. Obviously, it's applicable to Victoria, Vancouver. But do you see it being applicable to, I'm from Saskatchewan, for example? Not a lot of earthquakes, but, you know, you were talking about how it's, it's got wider applications than that. So did you have other ideas for what it could look like other places? Yeah, I think... 
The whole purpose of the Neighbor Hub is really to address the needs of each community and to go through that co-creating process together. So we don't know necessarily what the outcome would be, um, but hopefully that it would help foster resilience and bring people together. So for example, one community we were talking to in the Lower Mainland, they were contemplating using the idea of the Neighbor Hub to activate public spaces that just aren't used very often, especially in like long winter times when people aren't outdoors as much. So that could definitely be a way of building community and building resilience at the same time. Is there anything else you'd like to add or anything I didn't ask about that you think is important for people to know? One thing that we are learning about is, like I said before, figuring out where we can actually make a solid business case for our organization and how to balance that with community needs and working with community members. So one thing we're looking at now is how do we get into the the private world and private land ownership and what kinds of opportunities are there with developers, for instance, who have a lot of requirements from different municipalities of how to make their projects better for communities in general. And so that's been interesting for us to meet with people in that world that people may not think are you know trying to make the city a better place place but who actually are quite interested and so that's something that's also been on our radar so we're excited about that. Another thing that has really helped us I guess through the process of beginning to incorporate to where we are now has been different partnerships that we've been able to create with local organizations Uh, for example EDART Foundation, The Thingery and different clubs here at UBC and these partnerships have really helped us bring in local knowledge and expertise and also like move to the next step of our project. So even though we, for example, don't have the capacity to manufacture ourselves, we can partner with somebody who does and, and we can share these similar goals. And it's been, they've been really mutual, mutually beneficial, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and on your website, you also talk about plans for larger neighbor hubs that have even more functions than the bench, uh, things like access to water and energy generation. What kind of timeline are you looking at for developing those? It's really hard to say, and at this point, that initial idea might actually change quite a bit because we have changed ideas about how it looks, and you know, there's there's some new ideas coming up. But the idea of having a neighbor hub that has all those functionality I, functionalities, I think, is still in our hearts, and it will depend on finding a an organization that has land that could host it for us because some of the stuff we've learned is that building on public land is really complicated especially in Vancouver where there's the Parks Board and the City of Vancouver, and and that's quite confusing to navigate. But we still hope to build a neighbor hub similar to that in the future, but that might have to wait until we're a more established organization with greater sources of funding. We're currently prototyping different features of the neighbor hub, for example, rainwater collection and the generation of kinetic energy on the thingery and, and in different sort of instances or opportunities that we have. So depending on how these prototypes go, we might have the opportunity to have a real functioning prototype of a complete neighbor hub sooner rather than later. And it's been it's been amazing the amount of the amount of work that people will put towards this because we can't we don't have an income yet really. So we're not able to hire people but um, engineers for sustainable worlds at UBC and Sustained Engineering, those are two engineering student groups that have volunteered their time to work on these prototypes with us. And it's really quite amazing when someone, when people are passionate about a project like this, how much work they'll put in. And um, I mean, it, it kind of shows, like Leah was saying, the, the power of collaboration and also the power of working across disciplines, which I think our group is constantly doing and can be challenging because then you have to 
talk about things you don't necessarily know too much about, but you also learn so much in the process. Thank you for joining us. To give us your thoughts on any of the topics we discussed in this episode, you can find us on Facebook or on Twitter as at co-ops underscore first. Also check out the links in the show notes to see Neighbor Lab's website and some other resources that they mentioned. We'll be back in a few weeks with another episode of The Common Share.